Welcome everyone to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast, a place to come together to meet other passionate Jewish women from around the globe. We here value unity and we come together from different backgrounds, places and stages in life. We focus on what unites us being a Jewish woman. We believe that every woman has a beautiful and unique light to shine to our community and to the world. In these podcast interviews, we find the light in others, and we learn from everyone. These are the topics that matter most to you and empower you to be the inspired Jewish woman that you want to be. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another incredible interview with my friend Alyssa Udaskin from New Jersey. Welcome. How are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Be a mensch. That's going to be the topic for today's talk. Alyssa just came out with an amazing book that I could not put down. I started it and I sat on the couch for a couple hours until it was done. Alyssa is a seasoned marketing leader with 20 years experience in Fortune 500 companies, Kraft Foods, Nabisco, Cadbury. I hope you got lots of good samples along the years. Tons. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Alyssa is the founder of CaringOrganizer.com, a website offering inspiration, tips, and online meal schedulers to help people being supported during difficult times. And Alyssa talks a lot to that, really stepping up for the people around us, in our communities, in our lives that are suffering, that are going through hardship, going through loss, grief, and how we could meet them, how we could really support them during those times. Alyssa holds an MBA and an MA in international affairs. She's recognized globally for her local brands and all the great stuff she has done in leadership. And now Alyssa is an author and a blogger. She's always been a light in the world, but now she's taking her light and really shining it into the world making the world more aware of what it means to step up, to be a mensch. And I think that's pretty awesome, pretty holy work. Alyssa is a mother of two teenage children, and she has a lovable newfie, Thomas. <laughs> He's adorable, by the way. And her husband, they live right now in New Jersey. But I think what connected us originally was our Canadian background. Yeah, absolutely. We're both from Toronto or Thornhill. Yep. The suburb just north of Toronto. There's a lot more to it. It's not only the Canada A, like living in the States, but being totally Canadian. It goes deeper. I think it's our upbringing, our grandparents being survivors of the Holocaust, growing up with Yiddish being spoken, and certain environment, I would say, of hope, of positivity, trying to stay on task, stay kind. Mm -hmm stay resilient. We were raised with tikkun olam. Really so true. Our grandparents chose to live after all that they lost. We could have grown up with a lot of bitterness, but we didn't. We were raised with love. I met Alyssa at a meeting and the meeting was really interesting, but we started texting on the chat, like private texting each other and a friendship was born. I'm really grateful to be connected to you. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you as well. And like you said, we had so much in common. I think our Father's Yiddish names are even the same, Shloimi or Shloimala. <laughs> yes, yes, so much there. And there's so much beauty in our upbringing. And as the years pass by very quickly, and as I'm assuming your grandparents are no longer alive, is that correct? Yes. 
yeah, for myself as well, the grandparents have slowly left this world. And now I feel like it's up to us. We need to carry on that torch. Mm -hmm. In fact, my book, one could look at it as a legacy to my Bubi and Zeta, what they left for our family. I could just imagine them shepping nachas. They're kvelling in Shamayim. <laughs> <laughs> They're excelling up there. Wow. Okay, so let's jump in. I want to hear how this was born. This book, by the way, I saved it for the holiday of Shavuot, where I knew I had 48 hours to chill and relax. I could not put it down, and I chuckled through it. My kids were watching me. They saw I was laughing. I just thought it was so personable. It was so humorous. It was so real. I felt like I was having coffee with a friend. What was so cute was my youngest child, who's almost eight, he's a voracious reader. He picked it up. He said, Mommy, do you mind if I read it. So he started reading it and I saw he was cracking up also. And he just loved all the Yiddish that you threw in. And he's like, mommy, what does this mean? It's so <laughs> cute. It's a good idea to buy this book and also just to leave it around where your kids might see it. Because what do we want from our children? We just want them to grow up to be a mensch. Let's start with a translation. What is a mensch? How would you translate that? A mensch is a good, honorable person. Okay. As I say in my book, it's the best word. You could be any gender to be a mensch. You can be any religion and be a mensch. Even here in the United States, belong to any political party and still be a mensch. My whole message is that I really believe that everyone is a mensch, but we don't always all the time wear our mensch hat. So I want to give real life examples and situations where you may have encountered yourself in the similar ones where you maybe kind of put your mensch hat on, but everyone is a mensch. You just need to wear your mensch hat more often. Mm, I love it. If someone would ask me, what is a mensch Eve? I would probably use the words, and this is what comes to me. Okay. And I don't know if this, if this resonates with you, but I would say be a light. A mensch to me is someone that rises, someone that's bright. When you see a mensch and you see what they're doing, their actions speak louder than any words. I don't even know if there's a way of really putting it. You right. can't define it. It's an action, especially right now in the world where there's a lot of darkness. We need to shine. Step up. But the thing I would add to that is that, yes, it's those people who really shine their goodness, but I don't want people to be intimidated by that because I talk a lot about little things that you can do that are mensch like things to do and everybody can do it. It's not that person you see who's constantly the one who's doing all of these good deeds in the community and things like that. They are wonderful. You can work full-time job, have four kids, be super busy and still have time to smile at someone at the grocery store or when you walk down the street to help someone. It doesn't have to be heroic. I do talk about heroic things I did, but they don't have to be grand gestures. They can be really small things. You know, walking down the street in our town, we have a lot of homeless people. And when I started to really think about this topic, I realized when I walk down the street, I make eye contact and I smile and I speak to people. And that's being a mensch. It's something so simple, so small. It does not need to be heroic. I have to tell you that after reading your book, I was so inspired. And it was the small things that I read in the book that really heightened my awareness. I was walking by myself and it wasn't in such a good area. And I usually would have been just 
keeping in my lane, minding my business. And there was a man that was struggling with a shopping cart and he looked homeless, looked a little disheveled. I probably would have avoided, you know, just, just because I didn't want to confront. The day that I read your book, I actually went up and I asked him how his day was. You know, we were alone. There's an element of, is this safe? There is that element of a keep your head on, be smart. You know, it's like assessing the situation. It's safe. It's broad daylight. There's no one else near here, but there are cars across the street. So I want to say thank you, basically, because we've almost numbed so many parts of ourselves right. in protecting ourselves that we've almost lost certain sensitivities. Exactly. And I love that example that you just shared, because I also always say you have to be safe in all situations. Does safe negate being kind and being a mensch and being a regular person? No. And in that example, a lot of people may be worried, are they going to ask me for money? Are they going to do this? Do you know what? They probably just want to be acknowledged. I always just say, hello, how are you? Of course, some people are going to ask for money. But let me ask you, do you not have friends who ask you to buy their products when they're selling this? Do you have acquaintances who call you and ask you to donate? People are asking you things all the time and you're still talking to them. So it's just about opening your eyes, assessing situations, making sure you're safe and just being nice. <laughs> Not so hard, is it? And it feels good. Didn't you feel great? So good. Beautiful thing about doing a small act of kindness is that it really pushes you to do the next act. It's almost like endorphins, right? It's like the kindness drug and it's like, okay, who else could I look for? Do you know there's science behind that, what you just said? Mm. It's called the helper's high, okay? And basically, there have been studies that have been done where they did tests where people who gave and were kind to others without expecting anything in return, what happens is this chemical in your brain called serotonin gets released, and it's a feel-good chemical, and it produces what researchers have coined a helper's high. It's like real stuff. That makes so yeah. much sense. The meeting that we met at was about educating people end of life issues. I think that's a large part of your work in comforting and bringing just support to people that are struggling or grieving right now at that moment. Is that correct? So one of the things that I do is I volunteer and I volunteer with my shul, my synagogue. And so it's called the Gimilut Hasidim Committee, which is the caring committee at my shul. And so when someone is sitting shiver or is ill, the rabbi will text me and say, Elisa, reach out to this person. I need you to help them. And I organize with a group of volunteers to send them meals. And I'm also part of the Chavra Kadisha. So I volunteer in that capacity as well. So the Chavra Kadisha is basically the body of people. We follow the Jewish rituals to prepare the meta or the mate, the person who has passed away for burial. So there are different components of Shomer, which is sitting with the body, saying prayers, poetry. It's very spiritual. And the other one is the ritual cleansing of the body. So those are different things that we do to help guide the soul up to where they're going. It's actually very beautiful. The other thing that I do, I launched this website called caringorganizer.com and I have a Shiva organizer tool app in there. If you are organizing the Shiva meals and as we get out of COVID and we're going back to having visiting, making Shiva visits and doing all of that right now, we haven't been doing as much, it's been more virtual, but once we go back in person, they'll be back to sending in the meals. And basically with my website, you can organize the meals and people can sign up online. So it just makes it more efficient and easier. They can say what level of kashrut, level of kosher they keep. They have food preferences, allergies, what time the davening, the praying is in the morning, in the evening, 
all these types of details. And I also have lots of helpful articles uh, about what you can do to support other people. What do you do to help kids, to help other kids when someone passes away, when someone is ill who's afar? Everything for me is tangible and practical yeah. of things that you can do to help others. Right. And in, in that situation where someone is in pain or suffering, our reaction as human beings is sometimes to shy away, to step back, to, oh, I don't know what to say. Like one of the most uncomfortable places to be is at a shiva house. The pain is palpable. Like you feel it in the air. And what could you say? What should you say? What's right? There's so many people that will just not go or not pick up the phone out of fear of doing or seeing the wrong thing. So you speak to that because that's not an option, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I did a lot of research before I wrote this book and I spoke to so many people and themes emerged and what I'm going to share, it's totally normal. It's okay to hesitate, but you're not off the hook just yet. Okay. So a lot of people will say, I'm uncomfortable. They're going through so much. I don't want to bother them. You know, it'll be too weird. They're really my friend's friend. Although I see them probably once a month at book club, but they're my friend's friend. Won't it be strange if I show up at the Shiva house, they're gonna think, why am I there? You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I always say the best thing that can happen is they're going to be so pleased to have that support. I promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you that they are going to be happy that you are showing support. Mm. Now, there is something that you may want to think about. It's gauging the situation, taking the temperature. If it is a friend of a friend of a friend and you want to show your support, and I say you do it, but you're really uncomfortable, you can send a donation, you can send a card, you can send a text. You don't have to go all the way out there. You don't have to, but you're not off the hook like I always say. You should do something. If your inclination at first is, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. I want to do something. Then figure out what it is that you're comfortable with and do something. You'll feel so good afterwards. One of the topics that you mentioned in your writing was, was really gauging if you're showing up for the person or if you're showing up for yourself. I thought that was a very honest conversation that you were writing about just to kind of take your pulse. Maybe this is your need that you're pushing yourself in to a Shiva house. There was a story that you shared about a friend that you like, you showed up the day of the funeral and you showed up before the funeral. You're like, what could I do? What could I do? And they like, they didn't know what to do with you. So they're like, you could go to the store and pick this yes. up. Yes. It was in Ottawa, I think. Oh, it was in Ottawa. Good memory. Okay. So it was my very best friend. I had just moved to New Jersey and that first year, my very best friend's father died suddenly in a meeting in downtown Toronto. And it was tragic. And so I flew to Ottawa, it took me two flights to get there. And I knew I could only be there a certain amount of time. And so I was stressed myself. This was also 13, 14 years ago. So I was stressed myself about at what, how much can I fit in to help my dearest friend? How much can I fit in? You hear this, right? How much can I fit in? So I arrived on the day of the funeral and the morning I went to the house before they were going to the funeral. And I was like, I need to do something. Her mother turns to me and says, Elisa, help me with this tablecloth. I know you need something to do to help me. The bells went off. I thought, oh, what am I doing? That's when I first realized, what am I doing? It's not about me. Why am I 
having her mom who just suddenly lost her husband have to think of something to do. No, she loves me and she understood me and all this. But it was this realization at that moment that it's not about me making sure all the things I can do. It's like, what do they need at that time? And that was something that really obviously stuck with me and I'm trying to be cognizant of. Now, in other situations, four years ago, I moved into a new neighborhood after I moved back from Singapore and my neighbor next door, I'd known them for a year, loved them, same age as me. And the husband didn't wake up one morning. He was 47 years old and he just didn't wake up and they weren't Jewish. And I went over there that day and I brought my chicken soup that was frozen. I always have frozen chicken soup. And she gave me the highest compliment. She told me that that was the only thing that she and her girls ate that night. They said the Jewish mama next door, they called me oh. and they had my chicken soup. But with her, she had so many people come over. I talked to her and I said, because I had just actually organized a whole shiva for my father-in-law. I just come back from Toronto. And so I knew what to do, but she's not Jewish. But I said to her, you're going to have so many people coming this weekend because they had lots of friends and he was young. So do you want me to organize everything in your kitchen and clean everything out? And she said, would you? I said, you don't have to worry about anything. So she wanted me to. I brought my son, Kobe, over and my daughter, Sydney, and we just slept, went through the freezer, went through everything, made the room, did everything quietly, took care of everything. I brought over my silverware caddy for all the stuff, set up everything for her, but she needed that. Jewish, non-Jewish, just gauge the situation and offer your help. Take a step back when it's not needed, but if it's needed, you just keep going. You just oh, keep going. I life. love that story. And, you know, going back to the title, like be a mensch, as you're sharing the story, I'm like mensch alert, mensch alert. <laughs> as I said, there's a lot of light coming from that space. And in my terminology, I would say that's a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name in the world. That's our job as Jews. We're supposed to bring light to the world. We're supposed to do tikkun Allah, make the world a better place. So where does it start? Where do we begin? How do we do it? The world is so big. There's so many big issues, so many big problems. It's starting with yourself and your inner circle, your community. But this example of going outside your community, that made a tremendous impact to a non-Jewish family. That's our mission statement. I basically ran a shiva at her house, <laughs> you know, and she was happy. Right. Interesting. Because with some of my non-Jewish friends that have gone through loss and they don't have a shiva, Basically, you and I, I think we're the same cut, you know, we're the same nature and we push ourselves out there. We do what we see. We see a need. We go for it. We're not scared. We're not intimidated of the situation. We just do what we see as needed. But it's interesting in some situations, like one of my good friends that lost a grandmother recently, you know, I was gingerly talking about the process that they were going through. It was a very different process to the Jewish process of grief and mourning. So there was a certain place where I stopped, like, I'm not going to impose my traditions on them. But in the case, you felt it out. She was like, yes, come in, help me, set it up, go for it. And I think that is an important part of being a mensch. It's really, really being sensitive yes. to the needs of the person in front of you. Not yourself and what you need to do but what they do. It's like that example when people would buy you a gift that's their favorite thing. Right. 
This reminds me of, you know, Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. It's an amazing book, but basically that there are five different love languages. Everyone has a love language. So I think your love language is actually giving. As you're talking, you're such a giver. So that's probably how you feel loved by your spouse, by your children, by your friends, right? When someone gives something to you, you feel loved, but someone else might need words of affirmation. Someone else might need a card might need something different. So it's really just either asking what does it for someone, what would feel good because it's different for everybody. So what I do is if I'm not close with the person, I ask someone who is. You always can find someone who knows, like chicken or beef. I don't know. Just why make your favorite meatballs if they're vegetarians or if they don't like meatballs? You know, it's small things that you can do. Again, you can never do anything wrong. I mean, you can. You could say the wrong thing. It's been done. You can fix it then. You can fix it then. I have a friend who had a very significant loss this year. She lost her only child. Very, very tragic. She's one of my dearest friends. And we were talking about the pain of when she sees people in the street and people like avoid her because they're so afraid of being in an uncomfortable moment. And she just wants to see people, talk to her, ask her how she's doing. So, but it's also painful sometimes when someone says like, how are you? Because like, well, how long do you have? Like, do you really want to know how I am? So what she gave me were, And this is when you have a really good relationship with someone and they could tell you what they need. She said that she prefers, instead of someone saying, how are you? Because she's not doing okay. She, the words that she asked me to use was, how is your grief today? It's so simple. It's like when I check in, how are you doing? How is your grief today? Where are you holding? So it's always very helpful when people could share with you what they need. But often we need to kind of read between the lines and ask around or feel it out and trust our gut. So I want to hear so much more. And this is so much fun. I knew we would have a lot to talk about. I want to hear what motivated you to write this book, how you feel it was received, and just like the process of it. Just tell us a little bit about how it all happened. So I never ever thought I had aspirations to write a book, okay, or to be an author. I had a very, very straight linear career path. I was a marketer, a craft in Canada. I started Canada, then the company moved us to the US, to New Jersey, moved us to Singapore. I led a global team for two years and then back to New Jersey. So, you know, I was a mover and shaker, corporate world, traveling all around. It was really fun. And what happened was when I came back from Singapore, the global teams were eliminated, it was restructured. And it was my time to be like, okay, you know what? I want to do something else. I said, I am going to explore what I'm going to do. And so I actually took six months for a week at a time because I had to be at home, of course, with the kids and everything. I traveled and I volunteered in Central America. Went four times to Guatemala and Nicaragua and I volunteered with school with children with disabilities. Still didn't know what I was going to do. That summer, my father-in-law passed away and all of a sudden it crystallized what I needed to do, which was help people with Shiva and help people with how to support others through this because I observed so much. My eyes were open. I wasn't just looking at my spreadsheets and launching new products. I was looking around me at people. And so that's when I started Caring Organizer. And then fast forward, the articles and the blogs that I were doing were getting a lot of really good positive feedback. And that's when I decided I was going to write a book, take all of these stories I had in my head, stories of how I was raised, 
of a mother who constantly pushed me out of my comfort zone and embarrassed me by talking to strangers in the grocery store, by offering to help people, by giving away my stuff if I hadn't used it in a year. All of that good stuff that embarrasses you as a kid, I turned into my mother. And so I started writing and I found I never, ever, ever thought I was a writer. I've written a million presentations and all that stuff for work. Eve, I would wake up at three in the morning because I had these stories in my head. I gave up going to sleep, put the pot of coffee on and started typing. Wow. How long did it take from beginning to end? you gave birth to this beautiful book well remember i had all these stories in my head before so i didn't have to like start them but when i actually sat and committed to like typing it up and writing it it took two months for the first draft wow but it was also covid it was the beginning of covid we were in lockdown so there's a lot of caveats right. you know about how i wrote the book quickly there's a lot of caveats it's a real gift it really is a gift and as you're sharing your story and how this kind of emerged, I'm seeing how a woman who has gone down one path for decades of her life mm -hmm. was brave enough to venture into the unknown because it's almost as if you had the clarity, you know who you are and you knew what you wanted to bring to the world. And I can imagine that must have felt a little bit scary. Oh, it's so difficult because of course I had a very good job. Mm -hmm. So it was a significant risk in yeah. our family household for me to um, invest my own money in building all these things and building the website and doing these things and not making a salary. It was a big risk and it was nerve wracking, but you know, I was determined. I just said, uh-uh, you know, after spending 20 years doing this, I love my career. Uh-uh, I'm doing this. I'm going to cut back. I stopped having a cleaning lady. I stopped doing this, but there are just different things, you know, and then talk to people also. A lot of people ask me, there's always going to be, I don't call them sacrifices. I call them trade-offs. They're going to be trade-offs to follow your dreams. Yeah. Wow. It's very inspiring. Here's a question that sometimes I think about. This is a question that was posed by Rev. Noah Weinberg of Blessed Memory, the founder of Aisha Torah. He would ask, what do you want to be written on your gravestone? Mm -hmm. You could have had, you know, Alyssa Udaskin, career woman, you know, marketer extraordinaire, but... That's not what I want. No, you're like, I want to be the chicken soup lady. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You're moving from career woman and powerhouse to balabusta and changer of the world. I could just see it. I mean, <laughs> after 120, but there's going to be some pretty good words on that stone. Well, I was going to give you a little quiz of Yiddish words. You just took the first one that I didn't know if you'd know. It was balabusta. Balabusta. I wouldn't know how to translate it. I'm going to use another Yiddish word to explain it because sometimes that just flows, right? So geschickt. Geschickt is like you got it together. Uh -huh. You're like... It's a balabusta is probably like a homemaker, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just one of those Yiddish words. Like, is there a translation? It literally is homemaker, but I like a modern version of a balabusta, which is exactly what you just said to me. For me, a modern version of a balabusta isn't like our boobies, you know, with the apron. Modern version is someone who does it all. She can work. She takes care of her family. She takes care of her community. She does it all. And that to me is a balabusta. Wow. Yeah. Our bubbies did it all also, right? It, it looked a little different. It looked and felt different. They were homey, right? And they were home. They were really homey. <laughs> but did your grandmother work outside yeah, the home? I actually literally wrote about this too, which is that, you know, when I knew my bubby, she wasn't getting paid for her work. 
she was my booby. She was a dressmaker. And so she took it, you know, she actually made us homemade clothes and mended everything. I didn't have to go to a tailor until after my booby passed away, which was actually really, really hard. The first time I was sad, you know, I look back and when I think of her and I thought about the word balabusta, I thought she always worked. I mean, it's just that by the time I was old enough to remember, like she worked in a factory when they first came to Canada, to Toronto. She worked in factories. She was a dressmaker. She was always doing that on top of holding and balancing everything everything together. And that's why I say a modern version because she did everything. Like it shouldn't just be a homemaker. Right. It is encompassing so much more. It's nothing short of Wonder Woman. Exactly. So give me another one. Let's see. Hocking a Chinook. Oh, hocking a Chinook. Hocking a Chinook. Hocking a Chinook is like, don't bother me. Like, don't hack me a Chinook, right? Nag me. Exactly. Nag me. Okay. Oh, I like that one. One more. Um, A shunda. An embarrassment. Yeah, or a disgrace. Yeah. Disgrace. Okay. What a thunder. Oy, boy. Just reading the book, I really enjoyed the Yiddish. You used Yiddish throughout the book and definitions and you wove it in so beautifully. And that brought me a lot of joy because I grew up with a lot of Yiddish in my upbringing. And it was usually when my parents wanted to talk privately that they would be speaking in Yiddish. It was their first languages, both of my parents. And so so there were certain words that we we would listen in very carefully when we wanted to hear certain things. But um, I just want to ask you a question about Yiddish. Is it a dead language? Where is Yiddish nowadays? Well, first of all, the same thing happened to me, right? Like, I mean, I never thought I, I understood Yiddish, even it was spoken around me. But of course, it's seeped through. It's interesting because you and I were around the same age, and we've always heard it's a dead language, it's a dying language. Our parents, oh, yeah, it's a dying language, you know, that kind of thing. But what's really amazing is there's like this renaissance of Yiddish right now. Really? So there's this couple of guys, young guys in Montreal, who have this hysterical podcast, okay? And it's all in Yiddish and it's like really funny skits. I could get you the name after everything. And, um, you know, in New York, a couple of years ago, Fiddler on the Roof, the Yiddish production was phenomenal. I actually, when my parents visited, treated them, my brothers and I, for their anniversary. It was amazing. Wow. Yiddish is really having a resurgence, you know, with younger people now also. And it's beautiful. Like hipster. And in New York, there's a restaurant called Balabustas, you know, restaurants in Toronto, all this kind of like modern twist on Yiddish, like a modern twist on Kasha and Veronica's or things like that. It's more of like a cultural... It's cultural. Yeah. And obviously there are tens of thousands that still use Yiddish, right? I mean, I don't think as many as the older generation. Like our grandparents, that was their mother tongue. And we don't speak Yiddish. We understand a word here and there. Like I could understand a Yiddish conversation because of the Hebrew and because it's a mixture of languages. But it's a very unique language. I love it. And it's hysterical. So what I find also, there's a lot of Yiddish, right? Like Spanglish. So if you think about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it's a recent TV show that won all of these awards. And there's Yiddish words. Right. Shtizzle. But even an American production, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, the older Seinfeld, Saturday Night Live. Like, I mean, they still use... Yiddish words. So, you know, it's just, they're funny. They're just so funny. These Yiddish, like Jackie Mason, all the Yiddish Saturday Night Live when he was all verklempt, you know? 
so funny. Do you have a favorite word or term in Yiddish? Or a most used? Shmata. That's a funny one because a shmata is a rag. And so I grew up with Yiddish in my house, right? And so even my kids, we don't call it a dishcloth. We call it, you know, pass me the shmata. Right. So I still use a lot of words in my house with the kids that are Yiddish words. And you don't even realize it, right? I don't think of it, no. Do you know this word? What's a shissel? No, what's that? I'm pretty sure a shissel is like a container. Like I remember my Zadie, Oliver Shalom, he passed away decades ago. I was I was 12 years old, but I used to remember him sitting at the end of a day with his feet in a shissel. He would soak his feet. His feet were tired. You needed oh, to soak them in some salt water, right? A shissel, like a like a bowl, yeah. a container to soak something in. <laughs> it comes back to you. Right? It does come back to you. I hope you and I, and, and for all of us that could get a chuckle and relate to this conversation, I hope that somehow we keep passing it on. I don't think it'll be as strong with every generation. We lose some of the strength, you know, if not the words, at least the messages. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that we can do. And I bring my kids into doing things I do, small things, bigger things. Even the things I do, I talk about it at the dinner table. We just have to communicate and talk and show them. And and they might show us that they're not so into it or that it's uncool what we're doing. Like that's their job as teens. And it's our job as moms to keep doing it and to keep pushing them. When you spoke about your chicken soup, I recall when COVID started here and Pesach, we had to cancel all of our guests and everyone was in lockdown. So we still brought out the huge pots and we still cooked the same amount. And, and my daughter, who was kind of a annoyed or maybe she just yeah. wanted to show that she wasn't you know she's a teenager she said <laughs> what is this a soup kitchen right because we weren't having the guests and that was sad and but we were still dishing out the food and and I saw like what's going on in her mind you know I don't think she's annoyed she'll still have everything she needs but maybe she needs to let this simmer a little bit and maybe in 20, 30 years, when our kids are taking that torch that we're passing and turning into their parents, maybe, hopefully, they will. They'll, they'll continue on. They will. I hope so. They will. Let's just close. I want you to sum up if you have one message, like the <sighs> message of your book. It was so clear to me what the message was. It was almost a little bit uncomfortable because if someone wanted like a door out to, to doing something that they didn't want to do, you don't let them off the hook very easily. So what is like the message of your book? So my message, so it's be a mensch, unleash your power to be kind and help others. And the message is, I know you're going to be uncomfortable at times in these difficult situations, but you're not off the hook. There are so many easy things that you will be comfortable with and you must reach out to support and help others. And you are going to feel so good. Beautiful. Amazing. I think we all need to listen and to really step into that. That's powerful and practical and it's for every single person. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. To be continued. What are we going to do next? I told you, I think you need a Mensch podcast. You know, small doses of tips, tools, ideas, just flood the world with Menschlichkeit, right? That's like the plural, that's like the term, right? Menschlichkeit is taking being a Mensch and bringing it forward. I'd love to see you do more. Maybe your second book will be... 
<laughs> coming. I love it. Thank you so much. One more thing. How could our listeners find oh. your book? Oh, sure. Thank you for asking. So BMNch is available in paperback and ebook. And you could buy it on Amazon, anywhere in the world, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, because I know you have Canadian listeners, American listeners all over the world. And basically any bookstore where you buy your books, you can you can find it. Amazing. Good luck. I hope it really sells. I hope it changes the world. And thank you. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. We value that you are a part of our community. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and to learn more about the work that we do at Inspire Jewish Women. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website at www.inspiredjewishwomen.com. Notice that we use the word woman and not woman in plural because Jewish women are most powerful when we bond together and we together can create amazing positive changes in the world. Bye for now. Hope to see you again soon so we could continue this conversation.